The following podcast includes synonyms for fornication, defecation, urination, and our own fake word, statsturbation. Hello and welcome to episode 283 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Stateline, Nevada. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Vienna, Virginia is Ben Olson. And in Santa Barbara, California, I imagine you're, you're home, right? I Anne am. Is Anne Levine. Uh, Anne Levine um, is the law school expert. She's been on the show a million times. Um, we've got a bunch of admissions questions for you and just listener emails. We kind of grouped them all together um, and hopefully you can tackle them. Uh, Sounds like fun. Yeah, should be great. Some thanks for coming back on the show. This has got to be your like seventh time or something like that that you've been with us. Yeah. Um, so the questions are roughly: Is it too late to apply to a T fourteen school? Who qualifies as diverse? Me. Oh, there's some stuff, and then there's some stuff about scholarships. We'll we'll see how much we have uh, on the agenda. After that, depending on how much time we have, Ben and I are going to do some LSAT stuff. Um, we have a a comment from one of our teachers actually about people having problems with the word should or specifically answer choices that include should uh, we have our excuse of the week and we have a logical reasoning question from prep test 65. If we have time to get there, this show is going to air on Monday, February 8th. That means that uh, you've got a couple weeks before the start of the February LSAT flex that starts on February 20th. The registration deadline for the April LSAT is on February 24th, and then you'll be taking that test in the middle of April if, uh, if you do register. You can email the show if you want to get on our agenda. We've been getting lots of useful emails lately, so thank you for that. That's help at thinkinglsat.com. Uh, let's dive right in. Ready to do it? Ben, you want to uh, tackle this first email? Yeah, sure. So it says, is it too late to apply to a T14 school, an arrival podcast, an admissions professional, professional, said the answer was no. He explains, if law schools have a need, I would not worry about the date so much. I would worry about the quality of the application. I mean, I could give so many examples, but so many law schools have a deadline on the website and I can only think of two law schools in the last several years that haven't allowed people to apply past that deadline. So that covers one variable. Think about it from the Dean of Admissions perspective. You would always want more applications versus less. Should be fewer, by the way. Fewer applications. So the real reason for that date stamp deadline is to encourage you to hurry up and get your application in because law schools love data. They would rather get the data early rather than late, and maybe it'll, it'll be different because of crowding and so many applications. I doubt it, though. If a school says March 15th, the vast majority of schools will take your application March 15th or even June 15th. May 15th, Ben. Can we, can we March? stop the question there for a moment? Because uh, yeah. there's yeah. going to be so many components to this. But let's start with you guys like assumptions, right? The assumption here is that just because a law school will take your application a certain date means you'll be competitive at that date. But anyway, th that assumption doesn't, one doesn't follow the other. 
they may take your application. Doesn't mean you're as likely to be admitted late in the cycle as you would have been earlier. But keep going. I'm gonna I'm I'm sure. gonna save the, the the other nugget. Well, we, I might as well pile on right there because we don't even like people to apply close to the deadline. No. So if we don't like people applying close to the deadline, then why would we have them applying after the deadline? <laughs> so, so I, I let's hear the rest of the email so everyone's yeah. on board with this issue who don't, doesn't think about this quite as often as the rest of us do, and then I'll yeah. then I'll dive in. So this is we'll call this the fashionably late theory, right? Like it's like show better up late, late than never theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or that one. Um, so this professional continues, for the T14, here's the story I'm going to give. I had someone call me once in June with a very high 178 LSAT and a pretty decent GPA. He said, hey, can you help me apply to Harvard Law School next cycle? And I said, I think I can help you get into Harvard Law School this cycle. And sure enough, he was admitted to Harvard Law School in late June or July, applying in June. So, I highly suspect if you're shooting for a T10, T14, and you have a strong application, you're going to get some admits. I would go for it. Okay. Should I jump in here? It's a lot of components. Yes, please. So, let's start with basics. Basics. We all understand, if anyone's listening to your podcast or following what I do for more than three minutes, we understand that law schools operate on rolling admissions, which means that your chances of getting in and let's keep the example of T14 right now, because that's what the email did, that the chances of getting in to those schools in September, October, November is much higher than your chances of getting in in January, February, okay? Especially, and and it dwindles more from that mid-January down. There's a pretty sharp drop, okay? So So that is still true, and it is even more true. I've been saying since what, we did this in July, guys, with LSAT Demon or June, we did a big thing, right? Right, we predicted like this is going to be off the hook this year, and it's proven true. It's been off the hook with um, not. We didn't predict, I think, as much how many high LSATs there would be with the flex, but we certainly predicted the number of applicants, and it's proven true. And then the added bonus of these super high LSATs, which you guys can take all the credit for, <clears throat> and accommodations. These are <laughs> these are wrenches in this, right? In in this system, and so it. it if it was always the case that you're better off applying earlier, it is doubly more true this cycle. I am not taking on anyone who is calling me in the last two weeks and forward saying they want to submit applications now to start law school this fall. I won't do it. I think it's a losing proposition. Let's talk about exceptions to rules. Let's pretend this person with the 4.0 and 178 exists and that that happened, which it could have. Something that those of us in the field are very good at is spotting the outliers. We know who the person is that law schools will make some kind of exception for, whether it's an LSAT exception, a GPA exception, a late in the cycle exception. That could be diversity-based. It could be someone who's retired military. It could be someone, like there could be, there, there, there's someone who could be a Fulbright and a Peace Corps vet, you know, person. Like we know how to spot those people that law schools will make exceptions for, where the numbers will count less, where the time of year will count less. But those are truly exceptions, truly. Um, and for the rest of us, even those, the rest of you who are exceptional in many ways, it is too late for this cycle. You're not going to get the same results applying with a February LSAT or a January LSAT, as you would if you waited and applied in September, October with the same numbers, you also will not get the same scholarship offers. 
Did I kick that one? Did, did, did mean, we settle that? Yeah. I, okay. what, what Your response is exactly what I figured it probably would be. I mean, when I look at this email, or especially when I look at this advice, I get kind of a little bit angry about it because it's like, I don't know. It just seems, it seems so greedy. It's like, Oh, Oh, last minute application. Sure. I'll help you with that. And then I think about you, Anne, and I'm like, no, Anne has been turning down customer clients for, for months because it's not, it's not in their best interest to do it that way. It's not in their best interest. And I can't get them the best results that I know I could get them if they waited six months. And here's the standard line I use when people call me, many of your listeners have probably heard it when they've called me, is that I could easily take your money right now. I have tons of time right now. Okay. This is slow season right now, right? I could easily take your money and I won't. Um, It's not the way to be successful. I know you guys believe this and I believe that where you go to law school and how much you pay for law school, these are decisions that will follow you your entire life. And you do not make them on a snap decision. Oh, I happen to get a good LSAT. Let's apply right now. Let's see that I'll go wherever I get in right now. I'd also like to extrapolate the question for most of your listeners who are not going to be T14 category. So let's let's extrapolate out, okay, to to people applying anywhere, your local law school. Does this apply to you? Now, if you're applying to regional law school and you just got a late LSAT and your numbers are in range, I have no problem with that person trying to apply, okay? If you are in Columbia, you're trying to get into the University of South Carolina and you're applying with a January, February LSAT and you've got a 155 and a 36. Go for it. Okay. That is not a wasted application. But if you're applying with a low LSAT, low GPA, then the same rule applies. You're not going to, you're going to have a much harder time now than you would in the beginning of a cycle. Thank you. Should we move on to the next one? Let's do it. I've got my coffee. I'm ready. Perfect. Who qualifies as diverse? Me? Hello, guys. I've been listening to your podcast since February 2019. I finally pulled the trigger and got the demon. Uh, just the free version of the demon for now, which by the way, is the best free LSAT prep that exists. LSATdemon.com, the free version of the demon is the best free LSAT prep. I'll be jumping on live by the end of this month. I look forward to crushing the LSAT. Ha ha. My question is about diversity qualifications. Oh, wait, sorry. I, I violated my own rule. I, I intended to read this. Uh, I intended not to fix all of the grammar stuff. Uh, but it's hard. Me, it's so hard. It is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to re- really read every word. Ready? My question is about diversity qualifications. As you may have noticed, English is my second language. I was 19 when I decided to immigrate to the United States from Ukraine in 2013. I came here on my own, joined the army, got my bachelor's while being an active duty. No one in my family has undergraduate degree. Right now, I am in UCLA paralegal program. Would my background qualify me for diversity consideration? Thank you for all you do. I wish you guys have podcast every day, LOL. I am almost out of material to listen to on my way to the gym, LOL. And that's coming from V. <laughs> um, yeah. I love these questions. So there's yes. a lot that is diverse about V that law schools will appreciate. Um, for example, um, coming here on his own second language. And if he can show academic performance and LSAT performance, despite the second language, that's key. Um, Serving in the military, always a good thing, whether you're new to this country or (laughs) native to this country. These are things law schools appreciate. Obstacles overcome like that are things obstacles um, the law schools appreciate. However, 
if uh, V also has a very low GPA or no GPA because um, the paralegal program doesn't count and if undergrad was um, in Ukraine, or if, and if the LSAT comes back in the 140s, none of the other stuff is going to matter. Okay. So that's what tends to happen. I'm not uh, projecting or, or um, hopefully creating a, a prophecy for UV, but I, I do hear from a lot of people in similar situations who just cannot get an LSAT score that shows they can compete in a U.S. law school. Um, so I'll, everything is really going to hinge on that. No pressure V, but for someone like you, that's going to matter a lot. And then if you can get an LSAT score that's in range for a school, it can help override a GPA. The paralegal certificate doesn't do a lot. It does show interest in law. It does show you can complete some coursework in the U.S. in law, but it, those grades don't, don't really mean anything to the law schools uh, and those GPAs are always inflated. So, uh, you know, I, I would say those are some of the, the issues I would worry about, but the other things you bring to the table will be positives if you can meet the minimum thresholds in other ways. So V threw in a lot of stuff here. Um, yes. Some of it seems like it might would be more pro- appropriate for a personal statement than a diversity statement. Would you? Well, we all have to compartmentalize our lives, right? Every single person who has a diversity story could make it into a personal statement, right? I mean, and many people, the reverse is true. So it's about taking pieces of your life and deciding what goes where in the context of a law school application, right? Um, if learning a second language or being in the military, these things could be pulled out, right? It could be the military is the personal statement. It could be that the, the learning a second language, deciding to leave everything behind and start over could be the, the diversity statement. There's a lot of ways that people can compartmentalize their experiences. There will always be some natural, almost always be some natural overlap between those stories. Um, you know, you're not two different people in two different essays, right? But um, a lot of people have the misconception that the diversity statement has to end in why law. Diversity statement doesn't have to end in why law. Diversity state. Oh, I totally want to go on another tangent. Here's the tangent. I'm hearing a lot recently from people who think that their personal statements and diversity statements seem to have magic words. And therefore, I bring a unique perspective to the entering class. Or, and therefore, I want to go to law school to become a lawyer and earn my JD. Whatever. That makes no sense. But we don't need magic words. If you do a good job telling your story, the magic words are a waste of space. I'll just in that little tidbit unique is a magically bad word i love unique and firsthand we never ever <laughs> i would i don't think i've first, ever allowed someone to experience. leave the word unique uh, you know, so. yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah totally okay um okay ben anything you want to say about v's uh email no no good luck we all good yeah focus i mean doing demon free is great i'm glad that v is doing that but no, he actually showed up in one of my classes the other day. It might have been the, uh, might have been like one of the live classes that we do for the free free folks. But um, he seems great. He's like working hard, asking questions. Awesome. Yeah, I think he's gonna keep up the good work. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Uh, this one was addressed to you, Ben. You want to read it? Sure. Hi, Ben. Uh, this is from. Deba, who used the demon, by the way. Hope you have been well since we last spoke. I think the last time I emailed you was to let you know I got a 159 on the LSAT, started with a 147, so thank you, LSAT demon. Since then, I've been admitted to 10 of the 14 schools I applied to. I've been waitlisted at two, and I haven't heard from the other two yet. Uh, One of the schools that hasn't gotten back to me is American, which, if you remember, was my number one choice. 
I say was because out of the 10 schools I've heard back from, I've received decent scholarship offers. Anyway, all that to say, I have no clue what to do, and I was wondering what sort of insight you might be willing to offer. I emailed the podcast in October after I received my first offer from a low-ranked school. You all said that I would hear back from more schools with more scholarships soon, and I did. Two of the schools, Penn State and Brooklyn, seem like good options for what I want to do. Penn State actually offered me the most, $120,000 plus a potential $4,000 stipend. I went into the application cycle thinking American was my number one choice, and if I didn't get in, then I would go to Catholic, which I also got into with some money, then transfer to American, but everything has changed since then. I feel like I have better options. If I don't get into American with a scholarship, it feels like outside of the international program, the only benefit is I don't have to move. Anyways, I wrote back and suggested I would go with whatever school would cost her the least amount of money, which sounded like Penn. And and then she followed up with this question, and this question is actually what I thought maybe you could speak to. But if you have anything to say so far, f- feel free. No, no, let's hear the end, and then I'll go backward. Okay. So I said Penn State. She wrote back and said, Penn State is still the cheapest option. I remember Nathan talking about how certificates shouldn't be super important in my decision-making process, but what about the different program options? I asked because the reason I have been so stuck on American and Brooklyn over Penn State is because those two have international dual degree programs where they send me abroad for my second or third year. I want to eventually practice international human rights law, and I don't know if those sorts of programs would give me an advantage or if it's just a bunch of razzle-dazzle. Yeah, well, I'd like to answer some of that specifically and some of it broadly, because I think some of the issues she raised in her, I think it's she, in her first email to you, um, was, uh, can be applied universally, I think would help a lot of your listeners. So there's some themes here that recur, that people start off a cycle sure that they have a first choice school. Okay. And then as they see where they get in and where they get scholarship offers, things change. This is important for your listeners who have not yet applied to law school. It's important for several reasons. It should help them decide whether applying binding somewhere is really a good idea or not, knowing that their opinions are likely to change about where they'd like to go to law school. Number one. Number two is I, and I think this advice will even apply to Diva is that it's still too soon for her to make any decisions. No one should be making decisions in January, February about where they're going to law school when they still haven't heard from all of their schools. She needs to have everything in front of her, which should happen in the next month or so, right? With most uh, deposit deadlines coming in April 1, right? March is the month to start negotiating scholarships for schools that will do it, right? So if she's really stuck between Penn State and Brooklyn, she can try to see if she can up some offers, Okay, that's another thing that might change her perspective on where she'd like to go and Catholic if she doesn't want to move or what other what other schools are on her list. Lastly, let's talk about how important programs are in law school. Now, there are some people who really, truly know what they're doing by going to law school, and what they want to do with their career and have enough work experience and academic experience in the field to know how to get there and how to accomplish that goal. So to have a very. A sexy goal like international human rights that is a very specific and sexy goal. I mean, who doesn't want to be a Mal Clooney, right? I mean, come on, we all do. So we all know she's living the best possible life, right? So um, 
you know, if someone really has the background to make that decision about that's what they're going to be doing forever, then you can start asking the questions about which program will serve me best. The -hmm. best way to do that is by talking to alumni of the program and to call the schools and ask who you can speak with to ask questions. You can also reach out to people through networking and ask who, who have jobs you'd like to have in the next five years, right, after graduating from law school, and ask what they felt was important during their law school experience, right? No matter where they went to law school, what was important during your, unless they went to Harvard. I mean, look at schools that are comparable and say, okay, how did, you know, oh, I see that you went to this school and you're working for Amnesty. Can you tell me a little bit about that path and how you got there? You might learn that they did a study abroad program or a certificate, but you might learn they just took all the right internships, right? Or they wrote a law review article on a specific topic. There's no one way to chart the course. So both Brooklyn and Penn State are awesome options. But I also don't want you to overlook location. Some people are rooted in location. Some people don't do well far from home for the first time. You know, everyone's different. Um, some people really need a support mechanism, uh, support group. Some people need to be in a city. So just think about what all the things it's going to take for you to be successful. You stay in D.C., you don't have to move. But on the other hand, every single person in D.C. wants to be an international human rights lawyer. And every person who goes to American uh, goes there for the international law program. So there's a lot of competition to be a superstar. Whereas if you go to Brooklyn or you go to Penn State, not everyone is there for those reasons. Most people at Brooklyn want to be DAs or prosecutors for uh, DAs or, or PDs, for example. I'm generalizing. You know, there, there's something to be said for being the standout person in your field at a law school. So wait, right? And make yeah, a I would say, I would say chillax a little. I would, I would say spend some, use this time to talk to people who have jobs you'd like to have after you graduate from law school. It'll take a little legwork, but I think it will really inform your decision. Do you know anything particularly about these year abroad law school programs? You know, I, here's the thing. I think that these sound really appealing, right? When you read them, right? Who doesn't want to do that? But I think when you're actually in law school and you think about all the other things you miss out on, all the other opportunities you miss out on by removing yourself from your second year of law school, whether it's leadership opportunities, job opportunities, networking opportunities, law review opportunities, moot court, whatever is important to you, you realize you're making a sacrifice. Also, these programs are expensive, you know, so um, it doesn't end up being the thing for everyone. Also, there is a thing about pigeonholing yourself during law school, okay? What if we've solved every human rights crisis and you graduate from law school and there are no jobs in international human rights? Wouldn't that be a good problem? Um, But, you know, in other fields, that sentence would make more sense, okay? Some years, um, real estate, commercial real estate is the thing to do. In other years, it's bankruptcy, right? And if you you spend your time in law school really focusing on something that may not be hiring when you graduate, you have a very hard time pivoting and telling an employer, oh, no, I really do want to do family law or insurance defense, you know? Um, So I would just say sometimes it's better to keep things general or at least keep your options open. You know, it's great to be able to interview at a place and be able to say, oh yes, I took employment law and I took this and to be able to say to another place, oh, absolutely. I took federal income tax, you know, like, <laughs> you know, the more you keep your expertise broad, the, 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 you keep your options open when you get out. Now for some people, they really have the street cred to put together an argument for why they are going to do a certain area of law. And that's awesome too. But if you're not I've seen a lot of examples of people who say they want to do environmental law. They choose to go to Vermont or Lewis and Clark just for that. Then they realize what environmental law really is and it's not for them. And, and so those people tend to not be very happy with their decisions, both where, Oh, I didn't answer her question about transferring. Can we talk about that for a sec? Sure. She asked a question about transferring. What if I go to another school and transfer to American? So I have a, a golden rule about transferring. 
if you're applying to law school as a 1L and you're saying to yourself, I'll go to this school, but I'll transfer. It's a red flag for me. You should not start law school at any school unless you would be happy graduating from that school. If you would not be happy graduating from that school, do not go on day one. Do not show up at orientation. Okay. Because if you need to be, for example, in the top 10% of your class at American to transfer to Georgetown or top 10, 10% at GW to transfer to Penn or whatever, remember that 100% of the students want to be in the top 10% and only 10% will. Okay. I mean, I think that math works, right, guys? Like, it, it, you get the idea. I mean, everyone wants to be, just wanting to be isn't enough. It, it, and there's not a direct correlation in law school with the more you study, the better you do, right? There, there is to some extent, I'm sure there's a bell curve on it, but, um, you know, I would just say never start a sentence with, I would plan to transfer. Yeah. What I in like my... to tell people is that they call me in January, a year from now, and they say, oh my God, Anne, I got a three, seven, I got all A's and a B plus in torts. Can I transfer? That's the conversation I want to have. Um, and I like it even better when someone says, I'm not really sure I want to transfer. I'm really happy where I am and I like my scholarship here, but is this something I should consider? And that's where I want you to be a year from now, next January, next February, when you get your grades from your first semester of law school. Yeah, I I just can't stop thinking about what it was like as a 1L at Hastings. I mean, I that first semester at Hastings, if if you look around the room, you know, you're in a classroom with 100 people. I think 50 of those people thought that they were going to transfer to Berkeley. Oh, sure. The next year. Yeah. You know? And maybe three did or five. I mean, exactly. Yeah. And and that's awesome for those three or five, but really it sets you up for disappointment for the rest of them. And I also want to say this. I mean, I think people know this about me, but I'm no elitist, right? I, I mean, I, I went to university of Miami, like for undergrad and law school. That's what worked for my life at the time. It, it's funny recently. Maybe this is one of your listeners. I got this really snotty contact form on my website. You guys all love this. Okay. About how, well, why should I, didn't want my advice. Just wanted to ask me, why should I ask you for advice? You went to University of Miami. Yes. And I graduated from law school at 26 years ago, like um, whatever it was, 20 something years ago. Right. So I didn't bother responding. I crafted a response and didn't send it because I'm growing up. But um, nice. my point is this, like, Yes, I went to University of Miami. I by no means think that that is not an acceptable law school. Or my husband went to California Western School of Law and is an equity partner firm that has seven offices in the state of California. Like, I am no elitist. But do I have clients every year who go to Yale, Harvard, Stanford, Columbia? A hundred percent I do. But my point is this. I'm not always a believer in transferring up. I believe that there's a, there can be a great benefit to the right person to being a bigger fish in a smaller pond. It paid off for me being at the top of my class at University of Miami. I got every job offer after school. Like, you know, it, there, there are, there's not just one way to skin a cat. Can we still use that? Is that still a kosher thing to say? No, cats think, are people Okay, too. let's not use that. It's a better one to use. <laughs> okay, pick a, pick a better, pick a better one. There's more than one way to accomplish your goals. How about skin that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, but the next thing is anyway. veggies are people too. So I, yeah. Uh, no. okay. um, we were just talking about being a big fish in a small pond. I mean, that's something that comes up a lot, but yeah, you can be totally successful just killing it at a regional school. You don't, you don't have to feel obligated to take that transfer up. Okay. Um, or anything else we want to say about, uh, any of that? Uh, bottom no, line I'm, is yeah. don't, I mean, don't value these international programs unless unless like you said and you're talking to people and they say this is what you got to do i 
I, you're giving up on those opportunities. You're also taking your eye off the ball in terms of just like crushing it in law school. I, I, I don't know. I feel like they're just over. It's really situational. I mean, as I said, there are a few people I work with. I know they really will be human rights attorneys, you know, um, I have, I remember one from like 10 years ago I worked with and I was, she came on strong. She's going to be an international human rights attorney before it was popular, you know, and, uh, she, she is, I mean, she really is. She was the first one at the airports when the Muslim ban went into effect. Like she's what gives you a better chance of becoming an international human rights lawyer, going to American and doing this special study abroad program or going to Harvard? Well, going to Harvard every time, duh. Exactly. Well, that's I mean, my you point, can't even, that... but, that, but no one's really making that choice. Okay. There's no, no single person who's making the choice of going on a scholarship to American or going to Harvard. No one's making that choice. Which is the, but that's not my point. My point wasn't like actually, which of those should you choose? My point was to kind of just put a grain of salt along with this international human rights program or whatever that American has. It's like, that's not, that can't, that's not better than a top 14 So then if you're really weighing Penn State versus, you know, Penn State with a stipend versus American where you're paying a shit ton of money to go abroad for a year, which one is really going to put you in a better position to reach your goals? I, I don't think that that's automatic. You're absolutely right. And, And let's remember why schools have certificate and fancy programs. When I was director of admissions at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles, and before that at Cal Western, before that I worked at DU, uh, Denver University, all of these schools have these programs to attract people and try to stand out from the competition. They are marketing ploys, okay? They know that they are just like the law school down the street and they need to distinguish themselves. Would you say it's razzle-dazzle? I think that's a good term for it. I mean, it really is. I mean, some of these programs are led by great professors who have these amazing initiatives and are passionate about what they're doing. But the reason the programs are there and being thrown at you is because Law school is law school is law school. You're going to take the same classes your first year pretty much no matter where you are. Law school is law school is law school. The goal is you get through law school, you take the bar, you practice law. Law school, right? That That's all law schools fall into that category. Are you familiar with the Hastings, Haiti, uh, Hastings to Haiti program? I'm not. When I was uh, in, when I was there right before I started as a one L at Hastings, they were like, never stop talking about this Hastings to Haiti program. And they really used it as a marketing ploy, you know, come to Hastings. We send, we send law students to Haiti and they get to work on this international human rights crisis. And then you get to Hastings and there were 501 L's and they were taking three one L's for the program, but they just, they sell it to everybody. And then they only actually give it to three people. That's absolutely right. And that's true of clinics. You think everyone who wants to do a certain clinic at any law school gets into that clinic? No, you cannot choose a law school for one program or two programs. You you can't. It There's no guarantee it's going to be you. Wow. that's. I mean, I, I, can, I see what they're doing at Hastings or what they did. Obviously, you have to admit people to the program. But gosh, can you imagine like selling some feature in the demon and then saying like, Oh, welcome. Uh, it's only for three of you. It's just like, it's such a, it's just like. It's different. I mean, I don't know if that's a great analogy, Ben, because you can't send 500, you can't have 500 people in a You can't, but three is businesses. absurd. I don't right, know. I it's it's kind of like, what would people expect? You know, like, what people expect? Like, and same with all these fellowships that they advertise and things. I mean, you can't choose a law school for a program that is selective. 
Yeah, I mean, and that's the question that that people really need to ask. You know, do I guaranteed get this? It sounds yeah, no like one's this. signing up for the demon saying, "Oh, I signed up for the demon and I don't get free one on one with them." Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, no, it's like they want the up level. You know, that they feel entitled to the up level kind of a thing. No, you got it. You got to choose a law school for location, cost, reputation, all the same things we've always done in my books. I have like what four different editions of law school expert I've been writing now. Nowhere do you see pick a law school by its program. Your book's not Location, called Location, cost, expert. reputation. What is it called? Law school it's admission law game. School Thank admission you. Game. Your yeah, sweatshirt right. distracted me. I was reading <laughs> law school expert. I got zoned, like hypnotized by it. Thanks for the okay. swag, by the way. I really like it. It's very Looks good on you. Well, I, I had Thanks. the demon t-shirts last time, so yeah. or one of the times. Another yeah. time I had my Biden Harris shirt, which which went well, by the way. It did go well. Okay. Okay. Final thoughts on this topic before we move on to the next one. All right. Uh, these might be a little bit outside your, I'm not sure if you even do this sort of work and so you're welcome to just say nothing or you're welcome to provide your expert advice, or you can do what Ben and I always do, which is randomly speculate about what oh, we think. The yeah, I know you guys are really good at that. Know. You've got it down to a science. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so two questions about negotiating scholarships. The first one says, um, Hey, hey guys, thanks to you. I'm in a position to negotiate a scholarship at my choice school to full tuition based on comparable full ride offers that I, I guess, um, Madeline already has. However, I would prefer to defer my start at that same school for another year because of unforeseen family circumstances. Any advice on negotiating a scholarship, then deferring or even just deferring a scholarship? Thank you for the 15 point score increase and over half a million dollars and counting in scholarships. Couldn't have done it without the help of demon and thinking else at warm regards, Madeline. All right. Sorry. Go ahead. This is tough for deferrals. Now in some, some schools might uh, find that they are oversubscribed for this um, cycle and that could work in your favor for the deferral. Okay. What you may want to do is put down, negotiate the scholarship, then put down the deposit. Okay. Let the then and re, and don't put down deposits anywhere else. Okay, just the one deposit. Then go back to the school after the deposit deadline and say, "Oh my gosh, I just learned that my family thing happened. I really need to be home for this. I really want to be here and attend on this scholarship kind of a year." But here's the downside of that: um, you you really have to be sure you want to defer. A lot of times, people use deferral as like a um, well, let's see if I can defer and then I'll make a decision, right? But if you only put down one deposit at a school and you're not sure you want to defer, you might leave yourself with nowhere to attend this fall. Does that make sense? Because the school might say to you, well, we'll defer your admission, but we can't guarantee the same scholarship offer. So it does get complicated. You know, I, I'm not a huge fan of elective deferrals, you know, and, and people kept trying to defer during COVID and some schools allowed it and some didn't. And um, I'm not saying they won't do it. I don't know the school and I don't know the details and your personal circumstances, but I would say if you want to give yourself the best chance for that outcome, that the school would defer you and keep the scholarship, that's how we would do it. You can't also, you can, you can tell them you want to apply anywhere else. You've only put down one deposit. You're not on any wait list. This is where you want to go. You just have to wait a year. You basically have to put yourself out there, right? You have to take all the risk and then they'll believe you hopefully and honor the scholarship. There's not much incentive for schools to give deferrals when you think about it, right? Because especially in years when they know they'll be able to fill their class, like the and to hold that kind of scholarship money for you, 
right? There's not a ton of incentive in them for them. The, the, they could just have you reapply, right? Um, and see what scholarship you get. So there's there's not a huge incentive for them to hold on to any particular person in that way. When you're a director of a law school, your job right then is to seat the current year's class, not to seat the class for the next year. Yeah, you might be fired by before the next year. Class <laughs> Absolutely. Happens, so. so should you um, over-enroll this year's class? <laughs> well, I mean, as far as reapplying goes, in my experience anyway, I just haven't really seen people reapply and get worse offers anyway. No, they, no, no, unless they were jerks to the school. Uh, unless they were jerks yeah. to the school. If they did multiple deposits, if they tried to negotiate in a rude way, if they if they gave off weird vibes to the school. But generally, people get the same or better results the next year, even yeah, without retaking the LSAT or anything. I mean, schools aren't that inconsistent where you would get in one year and not the next unless you apply late. They're in the same business. Correct. Right. I mean, they have to seat another class next year. So, and they're, it's not like their star has risen so much that now all of a sudden they get way better. Appli- I mean, so, and especially this cycle, right? Oh, you have some updated data for us, right? But this is a really competitive cycle. And if Madeline was competitive enough to get a this star, cycle, to get she went multiple next. scholarships yeah, this yeah. cycle, then she's fine yeah, next cycle and, anyway. And that's why I'm not a big fan of deferral because you might have more options applying next year in a less competitive cycle. I'm a, I'm a bigger fan of reapplying. Exactly. It sounds like a better move for her not to try to do this. You took me exactly where I wanted to go with that. So yes, yeah. you're absolutely right. So every month, LSAC puts new data up about how many people are applying and and how many applications schools are getting and um, what LSAT score bands people are hitting. So you know, this is cycle has worked out pretty much how we thought it would when we did this back over the early summer, guys. I mean, look, the application cycle overall is up, a uh, number of applicants is up 33% overall, people who've submitted applications at this point. And if, you know, where it, it goes through, the dates went through yesterday. Okay. So I don't know, it, that probably does not include people who were waiting for LSAT results to come out yesterday. Okay. But let's, everybody else had already applied, right? And in previous years, they say that almost 60% of the applications were in by that time, which sounds low, to be honest. But remember that at lower ranked schools, particularly, a lot of applications come in in the spring, okay, when, where, where rolling admissions is not a factor. So it's not distinguished from the top 50 schools versus, you know, the, the more regional schools. But in any event, you know, the, the high LSAT scores are holding ridiculously high, like 100% increase or whatever it is from the 174 to 180 and um, the 170 and up, like the, the, the increases are crazy. And so everyone who was super excited about their 172 is now less excited, right? Because there's so much competition at that level. I think it's a commentary on the LSAT flex. It's a commentary on better prep methods being available more wide, wide reachingly and on the number of people getting accommodations, which we don't have data on, but we can surmise based on when the lawsuit was three years ago and availability of, I think it was three years ago now, the availability of accommodations, broadening and people being able to take the GRE and, you know, there's a lot of factors here, but um, yes, all indications are that waiting and applying in the fall for the, to start in 2022, if you're thinking of deferring anyway, you'll probably get better results. You may get a better scholarship offer from many schools and not just the one that you're talking about. Perfect. Um, One more email here about scholarship stuff. Ben, you want to take it? Sure. Hi, Ben. I'm trying to negotiate my scholarship at redacted school I just visited and the financial aid director suggested I wait until mid-February when recruitment really cools down. Do you think that even matters? Would it make, wouldn't it make more sense to negotiate 
ASAP before they give the money away to others? Thank you. I love this question. I get this all the time. All my clients right now are like, and do I start negotiating scholarships yet? I'm like, no, we don't do that yet. We negotiate scholarships in March. We negotiate scholarships when schools are stopped, no longer worried about admitting their classes. They have their wait list. They know they have enough people to fill their classes and they start worrying about, oh crap, who's going to send in a deposit? And they start worrying about who's going to send in a deposit. And that happens in March. That is when you negotiate. It's also when you, you also have, have your offers then, right? Right. Sorry, That's when I didn't you have enough to... information. No, so. no, we're on the same page, Ben. It's when you have enough information to negotiate. You need to know your top three choices and the order in which they are your choices before you negotiate. And you need to know how much money it would take for that order to change. So what would it take for number three to jump over number two? What would it take for, take for number three to jump over number one? You cannot negotiate anywhere effectively until you know that in your own head. You cannot just ask for more money, ask for more money. That is not how we negotiate, okay? We negotiate by telling school A that, you know, it's really your first choice, but school B offered you 10,000 more a year. And if school A will match school B, you will absolutely only send a deposit to school A. Notice my language. That doesn't say that you're taking weightless you're taking yourself off any wait list. Okay. It just says, I will only send in one deposit right now. And it will only be to you if you match offer from school B, but you can't just go in and say, Hey, school A, can I have more money? You have to have a plan. You have to be able to tell a school what it would take for you to attend. If you can do that, you're ready to, to negotiate. But when you're still waiting to hear from five schools, you're not ready. Yeah. I mean, in essence, you're making their job a lot easier too, right? Like when you come to them with an offer, as opposed to them, you want more money? Uh, okay, how, uh, f- five more? Like, w- like, what do you want? And so that's just human nature. It's going to be harder to respond, and their default answer is going to be no, even if they want you. It, 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 you haven't made an argument. You haven't given them any incentive to up your offer. They need an incentive to do it because they know you're going to go on Reddit and tell everybody, and they're going to get 20 more people emailing mm. them tomorrow with the same request. I mean, law schools are that's not a good point. generally stupid. <laughs> this is a good year to just like hold out. It would seem like as far as a negotiation tactic, right? Just it's like March. March is your time. Don't put in your and deposits again, delay deposits. as much as you can. You can negotiate after putting two deposits as well. So if you multiple deposit come April, um, you still have a little time to negotiate once schools see who has deposited and what their numbers look like. Okay. If a school starts going and pulling people off their wait list, you have a better chance of negotiating because it means they need they have more spaces to fill. Interesting. So, but this is a March discussion. Have me back on in a month, but um, I'll invite myself to the party. But this is not something I want people focusing on in February. The advice that the the financial aid director gave him is 100% on point. It's not time. No one's thinking about that yet. Their priorities are elsewhere. Okay. There we go. All right. Um, Anything else on any of these issues? Anything else, Anne, that you wanted to... uh bring to the party as you say no I'm, I'm just so glad to see you guys thanks for having me and thanks for putting up with the jackhammer noise in the background oh you can hear oh excellent then then forget i mentioned it thanks for having me hey um before we let you go uh did you know that ben's engaged i saw it all over instagram and i congratulated him you were late to log into zoom nathan you missed my congratulatory thing so yeah and i'm married again you know time to join the club nathan <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll see oh god he's like where's my tequila <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally. totally that's the first step right tequila when you're on the way tequila. Yeah, yeah absolutely i'm a big believer it was my birthday yesterday and i celebrated with some very nice tequila after oh, moving all day i deserved it thank you deserved happy tequila birthday. yesterday 
Thanks for having me, guys. Let me know how I can be of help. And if anyone wants more info, I'm at lawschoolexpert.com. Awesome. Thanks, Ann. See you you. soon. Bye, guys. Yeah. Okay. Um, Should on the LSAT. This is an idea for the podcast from uh, LSAT Demon teacher Katie. Okay. She pointed out in our group uh, Slack channel with uh, all of the teachers mm-hmm. that a lot of her students in her classes were bringing up the word should on the LSAT and what it means and how to deal with it. Okay. She says, students seem endlessly confused by this word. Basically, on the show, you could talk about the difference between is versus should or descriptive versus normative or whatever we want to call it. I've had a lot of students ask why you can't logically have a should conclusion from a purely descriptive premise or why you can't pick a should answer from a purely descriptive set of premises on a main conclusion or must be true question. Uh, Maybe you could frame it as responding to the question, when is it okay to pick an answer choice with the word should in it? Maybe we need an example argument. Well, sure. Um, Really quick, just to illustrate the difference between descriptive and normative, the example I've given for years, and I I hope this makes sense to people. Oh, great. Uh um, Is I would always say in class, like, okay, just because, you know, I should pay my taxes doesn't mean that I will, right? Or do so, pay your yeah. taxes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and then I would also go further and say, um, just because I should doesn't mean I will, and it doesn't necessarily mean that I even can, right? Like, so there's, like, the difference uh, between, like, ability and what actually happens, yeah. and then, but the can your ability to do something and whether you actually do it, those things are both descriptive because they're telling you the way the world is as opposed to the way the world should be, um, which, is, which is different, right? So if the LSAT tells you how the world is and then someone draws a conclusion about the way the world should be, they're making a logical leap, a jump, and you can't do that. Um, I think the most... Let me give you... A- yeah. Give me an example, maybe. Sure. So this is what I was thinking, right? You know, Lake Tahoe has clean air. Lake Tahoe has spectacular views. Lake Tahoe has the lake in the summer and skiing in the winter. Lake Tahoe is a beautiful place to live. <laughs> Therefore, you should move to Lake Tahoe. Yep. Yep. You know, and it's like, it's the, the, the problem with that is the leap from descriptive to prescriptive, right? Or normative, we could call it, I suppose. Yeah. The word I like to, in class, I like to yell at people about, I, I like to use really vivid examples if I can, right? To try to get people to really understand what I'm talking about. But I say that should is the F word of the LSAT. I like that. Yep. Right. Like that's the word where it, when the, if the lawyer reads that and gets to should and goes, Whoa, wait a second. You can tell me all the facts you want about Lake Tahoe, but the second you say you should therefore yeah. move to Lake Tahoe. Uh, you're maybe, swearing maybe in my not. face. Don't tell What's me. What's that? Don't tell me what to do. Don't exactly. tell me what. And that's the, that's the swear. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I was going to say, in your example, you talk about 
how Lake Tahoe is beautiful, is nice, all that stuff, right? I was thinking to make it even tighter. Like you could say something like skiing is dangerous, right? You're talking about skiing. Uh And then you're like, therefore, you should not ski. Or rock climbing without ropes is dangerous. Everybody's like, oh shit, don't do that. It's like, that's, you're jumping to that conclusion, even though the conclusion is so close, right? Okay, so rock climbing without ropes, you shouldn't do that. Well, that's just, you're assuming just because it's dangerous, you shouldn't do it. Yeah, climbing half, climbing El Capitan without ropes is extremely dangerous. No one has ever done it before. No one survived. Therefore, you shouldn't do it. Yeah. You don't get to tell my client, Alex Honnold, not to do it. Mm-hmm. You need to, pre- you have to present a premise that says you shouldn't do things that are spectacularly dangerous that no one else has ever successfully done before. Yeah. Without that missing premise, you just can't reach that conclusion. So if this was a conclusion or a must be true question, we just wouldn't, we just wouldn't be able to but, get there. By the way, I'm a little perplexed by this main conclusion part though, because in main conclusion questions, for the vast majority of cases, all you're doing is regurgitating the main conclusion. So even if the LSAT made that foolish mistake. Yeah. I'll take it back. I think she meant to say supported or must be true. Okay. Yep. You know, the top down types of questions where it's just like, hey, which one of these do we know has to be true for sure for this stuff? Yep. You know, but well, uh, I will say there are main conclusion questions where it's just fact, 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 and they don't actually say their conclusion, right? There are questions where it's like an implied main conclusion. It's implied or the argument was structured to reach which one of the following conclusions, but that's, it's pretty rare. Yeah. But in that case though, you definitely can't pick the conclusion that says anybody should do anything else if there weren't premises that that set that supported the idea that you that you should i mean that it has to actually say should or some synonym of that it's important or it's key or something everybody like that. must or something yep. like that if because otherwise you just are not going to be able to reach that conclusion i would say um i think also you can't go from prescriptive back to descriptive i think you already said this right like what if it was like uh Everybody should go to the dentist. If you don't go to the dentist, you will have cavities and your teeth will fall out of your head. Nobody wants to have their teeth falling out of their head. Ben doesn't want his teeth to fall out of his head. Which one of the following must be true? And if one of the answers was Ben will go to the dentist or Ben, Ben, uh, Ben does go to the dentist. Right. So what we had there was a whole bunch of normative, prescriptive, however you want to say it, should premises. But that doesn't necessarily support, it doesn't prove the actual descriptive. Ben does go to the the dentist. Well, I I was, I was saying it in a, like, it was just a bunch of facts, right? Yeah. So everyone should go, no one should let their teeth fall out of their head. If you don't go to the dentist, you will have your teeth fall out of the head, out of your head. So that um, right there is that's shifting back to descriptive, but okay. okay. But the point is, there were a whole yeah. bunch of shoulds in there, and yeah. then if it was a must be true question, and one of the answers said, therefore, you know, or one of the if it, it could be an argument where the conclusion says, therefore, Ben does go to the dentist, Ben will go to the dentist, Ben can go to the dentist. Or if this was just a must be true or a supported question, and one of those things was in the answer choices. Mm-hmm. 
You would say. I would say I should, but that's it. You wouldn't say that I will or can. We don't know. Right. The, if the, you can't reach that conclusion that you actually mm-hmm. will, mm-hmm. Uh, if it was an assumption question. You'd be assuming that you do what you should do. Yeah, exactly. And that might be yeah. both a necessary and a sufficient assumption of the argument. You know, mm-hmm. Ben does do the things he should do yeah. would be the obvious missing piece of that argument. And I think you could probably see that as both a sufficient or necessary assumption. Yeah. Um, cool. We still need to write our book where we write some arguments and then we write each of the different question types associated yeah. with that and exact same answers. argument. Yeah. Cause we just did it right there. I mean, we were on main conclusion supported must be true, necessary assumption, sufficient assumption. And it also would have been real easy to make those strengthen or weaken or whatever, right? I think it would help people see how predicting what's wrong with the argument can lead them to the correct answer, regardless of the question type. Yeah, and convince them that they shouldn't read the question first and just really attack that argument because they can ask you any type of question based on that same argument. And really, the whole point of it every single time is going to be, do you understand what's missing? Like, do you understand what's there? And do you understand what's not there? Yeah. Then they can ask you whatever question they want, but it's, you've already done 80% of the work before you even get to the the question part. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else about should? Nope. Uh, You know, the one thing I really, I just want people to notice it. Yeah, it should like you said, it's Should. the F word, right, on the LSAT. And if it That's, doesn't stick that. out to you like the F word, um, you just haven't been burned by it enough. It's a value judgment. It's saying yeah. what should happen, for the lack of a better word, as opposed to what actually is happening. That's the key difference. And if you don't see the difference between those two things, uh, I don't know. Just start thinking about all the things you'd like to do in your life or you feel like you should do in your life, but you're failing to do. That might be a good place to start. <laughs> yeah, that, that's why I love I, I like make a big show about it in my classes. You know, as soon as I'm reading like the argument on a logical reasoning question, or even in an answer choice, and I see that should, and I go like, should? Yeah. Whoa. Oh, my God. Whoa, calm down. Should, should, you know, and I do the whole thing about should being the F word of the LSAT, because it's like, you have to notice that that is now shifting into a different realm of instead of just describing what is now you're trying to tell somebody else what to do. Yeah. And that's a good place for people to lawyer up and push back on, you know, that edict. Yeah. You know, if you're missing the should, if you don't see it as an F word, it's probably because the LSAT has tapped into one of your underlying assumptions about life and you just totally totally missed it, right? So it's like, oh, this new law is going to dramatically reduce the habitats for hundreds of endangered species. Therefore, the new law should not be passed. And everybody's like, yeah, totally. Oh, yeah. Everybody's just like, well, of course, course. obviously we don't want, (laughs) you know, (laughs) of course we don't want to kill these poor critters they're endangered after all right and and so you're drinking the kool-aid and so you don't see that that was a jump in reasoning they gave you a fact they told you what would happen but just because all that death and destruction would happen 
doesn't mean we shouldn't proceed with the law for a variety of reasons. One, even if you're right <laughs> that those critters ideally should not be killed and they should be preserved and they're not deadly to humans or something like that, maybe there's some other factor that's even more well, important. Maybe the law, and it doesn't even have to say anything about this on the page, right? You just have mm -hmm. to think about what the other side, like, why might they be trying to pass this law in the first place? And it might be that this law is going to save a billion humans. A billion. Yep. You know, you like, for all we know, <laughs> this law is necessary to save the human race. Or actually, for all we know, this law is required to save all other animal species. Mm. Yep. We're going to give up on the ones that are endangered, but we're going to preserve everything else. Well, we might need to do this in yeah. order to save Earth from uh, an asteroid strike. Yeah. You know, or some crazy, like we, no, it's like we're talking about the extinction of the planet. That's why we're doing this in the first place. So yeah, it's going to lead to the extinction of a whole bunch of different critters. But if we don't do it, all those critters plus everybody else is going to go extinct. That's a big reason why you shouldn't just accept that conclusion. But even if none of that's true, and the only right. reason this, <laughs> and every, you know, like these critters are all going to die, and um, there are no other benefits, no other downsides, just pure <laughs> evil. <laughs> are you saying that evil's something you shouldn't do? <laughs> like, it, that's an assumption. The LSAT is trying to make you amoral, not immoral amoral without moral yeah you do get to bring in your knowledge of the world yep and frequently you can make common sense objections that are based on your normal practical common sense understanding of the world and that that objection will turn out to be exactly the answer yep but you don't get to bring in your like moral opinions yeah you know it's it's not about you they are they are never testing whether you inter you're interested in saving the environment yep or whether you're interested in international human rights or justice or fairness or equality or any of those things are there is no like fairness or equality principle that you can assume on the lsat yep okay um Anything more about should? Nope. Excuse of the week. Sweet. Take it. Jackson writes, Jackson's one of our demon teachers, by the way. Yep. Oh, one I remember from one of the threads that I didn't hear specifically was, I'm just a visual learner. Like, great. Even if that's a real thing, it doesn't mean you can't do logic games perfectly. <laughs> um... Okay, so the excuse is I'm just a visual learner. What's someone trying uh, yeah. to say here? Well, what they're doing is they're making an excuse for their lack of progress. Yeah. Um, I was actually Googling last night about learning types. Um, one of my buddies back in San Francisco, he's one of the smartest dudes I've ever met. He might be literally the smartest person I've ever met in my life. Okay, He went yep. to MIT 
He has won the MIT mystery hunt multiple times, which is like this insanely hard problem solving thing. Hmm. He's like a musician. He's a badass math tutor. That's what he does for a living is he, he teaches math tutors math. Okay. Um, Wow. Shout out West Carroll, Berkeley, California. Anyway, he's a he's a great math teacher and w- buddy of mine, and really one of I mean, like shockingly smart. Mm-hmm. And he <laughs> he just blurted out in one of our we have like this. There, I am not there anymore, but there's this Bay Area tutoring summit where it's like all the like fancy high high level like tutors get together and do like education and stuff like that you know networking and education and uh he just like blurted out in front of all the other smartest people that i know he just blurted out something about like learning different learning types aren't a thing yeah like they're just not it's not it's not real it's fake Mm -hmm. and um I was doing some Googling about it last night and it seems that the data supports this proposition that there actually is no such thing as learning types and um, teachers, especially like lower level teachers, you know, high school teachers, that type of thing. Yeah. They love this idea of learning types and learning differences. And every student has to be taught in the way that's the most appropriate, blah, blah, blah for their learning type. And, you know, um, it becomes an excuse for your failure to teach, reach certain kids, right? Exactly. Exactly. And the, the real damaging part of all of this is that it gives the student an excuse for not learning. Yeah. Right. Like, so the teacher might be using it as an excuse for, oh yeah, well I couldn't get through to Johnny because you know, Johnny's an auditory listener and it's too hard to, or what, sorry, auditory learner or a visual learner or a tactile learner or a kinetic learner or whatever it is, you know, it's like, well, that's why I can't get through to Johnny. Yeah. But then Johnny might be like, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a kinetic learner. That's why I struggle. And you know, these visual, I can't do the visual stuff or I can't do the auditory. I can't learn that way. Yeah, it almost seems like more likely when you are learning in that other way, it just happened to be something that you were more amenable to learning. <laughs> exactly. Like you were more interested in that, so you actually focused, and that focus is what led to your learning. Yeah. I'm not saying everybody is the same, and I don't know for a fact that learning styles aren't a thing. But you're but, skeptical. Well, I'm super skeptical because it seems as if there's no evidence in favor of that proposition. Right. That's, that's the nature of the scientific method, right? We, we have hypotheses and we try to disprove them and, you know, or we, we we're looking for information that supports or, or whatever. We're trying to figure out whether this is real or not. And from what I've seen, nobody has been able to find, to, to find any support for this proposition. So that's not the same thing as disproving the proposition. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. It's interesting too because I imagine some people listening to this might be upset. They might say, "Hey, sure. I know I'm a kinetic learner or whatever." But it it also um I'm and they may be totally right. So you could be right. Obviously, we're not experts in this domain, but um uh, one thing that's so problematic about individual experience is one, you're an an individual. And two, 
your subjective experience with things is so fraught with like problems, right? Like you believe something is true. And so then you remember those instances when it is true and you forget those instances when it's not true. Like you're a kinetic learner. It's like, oh yeah, but what about all those times you struggled in a kinetic learning environment? You just conveniently forget those. It's not even intentional. I'm not saying this is like someone is trying to deliberately ignore the facts that go against their belief, but it's what humans do. I don't know what to say about that. It's just, if you have a belief, you tend to remember the things that reinforce it and you tend to forget the things that don't. So you can have a very strong belief that unfortunately has no evidence for it because the evidence goes both ways. You just don't remember the bad evidence. Anyways, that was a long like monologue about. (laughs) Well, I mean, I, yeah, I want to agree that it, it's like, even if it is real, so what? what like, sure. it, it, if, if it is real, then okay. It, and hey, you might actually have, you might be able to say to your teacher, I learn better this certain way. Then maybe your teacher can help you learn that way. Or maybe you can go find ways to learn that match your perceived learning style. That's fine. If there's tools that work for you, then good. Use those tools. Great. Fine. But this sort of thing, you know, oh, I'm a, I'm a, whatever. I'm a, I'm a kinetic learner. So therefore I can't do logic games. Yeah. Okay. Well then this isn't, this isn't for you then. Like you've decided you're just giving up on one whole section of the LSAT. Like this isn't going to work in law school or it's certainly not going to work on the bar exam or what are you going to do? You're going to go in court and be like, Oh, I'm sorry, your honor. I, uh, yeah, I didn't really catch that out of that brief, uh, that filing or whatever. I'm a, sorry, your honor. I'm a, I'm a visual learner. So I didn't, (laughs) I I couldn't figure that out for my client. But what do you what do you recommend we do for my client? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm open <laughs> to suggestions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want. I definitely. I'm not trying to be mean to people who who think that they you know learn differently. I'm, I'm certainly not saying everybody learns exactly the same way. But if you're if you're using a learning style as an excuse for not learning logic games, for example, I guess what I'm saying is that we just can't help you at that point. You've decided already that you can't, that you can't do it. No, wait, we can. This argument right now can help them because it can change the way they believe the problem can be solved, right? This is an excuse like, oh, I learned this other way. You're not teaching me in that way. Maybe no one is teaching it in that way. So I can't learn it. No, you can. (laughs) You can. That's the thing is so crazy is you, you can learn so many things. You can learn new skills, new habits. Just about anything is malleable. Yeah. And people just don't believe that. So you gotta like change that belief. Yeah. Which changes your behavior and then it changes the outcome. I get a lot of like, I mean, one thing that people ask me for sometimes in class, now that I'm thinking about it, people will be like, well, could you draw that argument out? Yep. And sometimes I will. 
but I'm kind of reluctant to do it because drawing that argument out, I just don't feel like is the best way to solve the question. If I thought that drawing it out would have helped in the first place, then I would have drawn it out in the first place. You know, and, and, and I think a lot of times it's like students are used to teachers who do draw out logical reasoning arguments. And it's not that I can't do it. It's just that I think that there's a better way for you to understand this. And by the way, your law school professors are not going to be drawing out arguments for you. You know, like that, that draw, that drawing out the argument is like basically LSAT dogma that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. So if we're, if I don't need to do it to answer the question, and if I think most students don't need to do it to answer the question, then yeah, I can do it for you, but I don't actually think I would be helping you if I did. I don't know. I'll have to think about it some more. Yeah, it's interesting. I've definitely drawn out a lot of arguments too. I think um, if the goal is to bring them back, like if you're like, okay, look, this is how the logic looks. Yeah. Can you now, can you like see that intuitively? Can we read this again? And now do you kind of, does it make sense? Now can we let go of the drawing and like come back, right? Maybe that could serve some purpose. I could see that. But yeah, like you said, you're not like, okay, let's approach this question. So what I'm going to do here is draw this. Then I'm going to draw this because that's not what you're doing. You're understanding it intuitively as much as possible. Now in real life on the LSAT logical reasoning, I would draw out one question per. Yeah. I think we've talked about this before. Five tests, 10 tests maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I mean, it's it's just not a thing that I, if, if, if you, if you have to do that, you're probably already in trouble on that question anyway. And if you're going to try to do that technique on every question, you just, there's no way you're going to finish the section. Yeah. You know, if you can't, if you can't, do it intuitively just by reading the argument, then odds are you can't draw it out correctly anyway. That's the biggest problem I have with drawing is that people, they just don't follow what they drew. They don't draw it correctly. Or even if they do draw it correctly, they like, they like oversimplify their if then statement. So the if clause was like long, right. And had like multiple elements to it. And their drawing has like one letter. And now they just think, well, if that happens, then this other thing is going to happen. And you're like, oops, actually, that's not what the original said. It said, if this thing, this longer thing happened, I don't know. It's an abstract discussion, but yeah, I thought about like doing an example on the whiteboard behind me, you know, but it's just like what I see when people draw out arguments Mm -hmm. is they add this level of abstraction that then confuses them. Yep. And then it's so easy for them to forget what they wrote, forget what it meant do the diagram slightly wrong. And now the question is impossible anyway. And it was a big waste of time to do all that stuff. So you just, I don't know, you really weren't helping yourself. Well, whatever. This is a diversion. This has nothing to do with the, the whole uh, excuse of the week, but there's lots of excuses out there. There are. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have to say, and I do think you agree with me, Ben, that the whole learning styles thing is, uh, probably not supported by data and therefore we would hypothesize that it's just not real based on your quick google search (laughs) well no i mean it's like i 
any study that I saw just did not suggest that this was a real thing. I people can email help at LSAT Sorry, help at thinking if they want to continue the learning different the learning styles. I'm not saying there's not learning differences, but the whole learning styles thing of like, oh, people learn in one particular way. Um, I think that that is probably not real. And even if it is real, what are you going to do about it? It's just not a good, it's a, it's a frequent excuse for not doing the work or not asking the right questions or just like not getting there. And people are just, they fall back on like, oh, well, learning styles. Yep. Okay. That's the excuse of the week. If you have a suggestion, maybe your study partner made some stupid excuse, or maybe you saw someone else in class make a stupid excuse for why they weren't doing better on the LSAT, uh, you can get on our agenda. Just email help at thinkinglsat.com and suggest some excuses of the week for us. We're also always looking for new pearls versus turds submissions. So uh, if you've heard any weird advice out there on the internet that you want to double check via the podcast Uh, please do email help at thinkinglsat.com. All right. One logical reasoning question, Ben, and then we're going to get out of here. Perfect. Okay. This is uh, prep test 65, section four, question 19. One of the precious 150 questions that the law school admission council um, for the small fee of $5,000 a year lets us talk about these questions publicly. By the way, these are all in LSAT Demon free and you can sign up for a free trial of the Demon to do a full practice test. You can do timed sections, you can do drilling and you can watch um, recorded versions of the live classes that we do in LSAT Demon. There's actually six hours now, three two hour classes that you can do for free and they are super, I mean them to be super helpful. I'm serious, Ben. I'm like really fired up about making demon free. The obviously best free prep there is. I'm tired of people coming to me with terrible ideas. They got from Khan Academy. Yeah. And I, it, I it's, it sucks. It's like, they've just done people a disservice by putting out this mediocre free tool with all this bad advice in it. And, um, I really try to debunk all that in these free classes. And um, we want you, even if you have no budget for LSAT prep, we want to help you as much as, as we're allowed to help you. Um, LSATdemon.com, sign up for a free account. Study as much as you want for free. And check out those, those classes. I think you'll really enjoy them. You can click along with the questions. So you get, it's like you're in the class. I mean, you just... I tell you what to do, you do it. And then we have a discussion and you're, you know, you can, you can actually still hit the ask button. If there's anything that doesn't make sense to you, you can ask questions. Um, okay. Here's this argument. Okay. A consumer advocate says in some countries, certain produce is routinely irradiated with gamma rays in order to extend shelf life. Yum. (laughs) Ben says yum I'm already thinking about our our should discussion okay because there's no should there nope that's just a descriptive premise right it's what they are doing and I'm on guard see because I think the natural reaction to that and this is probably what the LSAC is kind of fishing for here 
is you read that and you go gamma rays. Oh my God, that's terrible. Oh, we, no, we got to ban that. We, we can't have gamma rays. Stop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's the thing that I'm already on guard for. It's like, well, hey, that's a descriptive premise. And I'm not going to argue with you that in some countries they do irradiate with gamma rays some of their produce. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to make any judgments about that. That could be the best thing that ever happened. Or it could be the worst thing that ever happened. But I don't know yet. I just know that it happened. Yep. There are, however, good reasons to avoid irradiated foods. Any thoughts? Well, it's just telling us that there is evidence, but it's not saying what that evidence is, and it's not saying what the counter evidence is. Like, there are good reasons to avoid it. Are there good reasons to also not avoid it? So right now I'm just kind of like, the ball really hasn't moved forward one way or another. I feel like there's an implied should in that. There is this like, like you feel like the author is going to say, hey, we shouldn't do this. Well, if that's a premise, if that was a premise of the argument, then I wouldn't object to it. But if that turns out to be the conclusion of their argument, Mm -hmm. right? Could be. Then, yeah. then they have actually made like a sort of a normative. They've, they're making a judgment, and I'm not sure if that judgment is actually justified, right? Yeah. What are those reasons? And as you say, Ben, what about the reasons why it's good? You've already said that it extends the shelf life of the produce. Surely yep. that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, we might cure starvation. <laughs> okay. So it says first. So now I'm expecting like a list of the reasons why we should avoid or there. The, I'm, li- I'm expecting a list of good reasons to avoid radiated, irradiated food. Mm-hmm. First, they are exposed to the radioactive substances that produce the gamma rays. So it's not just the gamma rays. It's also the uranium or whatever okay. that produces the gamma rays. Yep. Do you want produce that's been exposed to radioactive substances? So this does require us to assume that things that have been exposed exposed to radioactive substances is not good. Uh, they don't say that, but I'm just going to go with it. I'm going to say, yeah, that doesn't sound like a good thing to me. Well, it certainly sounds like it could be bad, but it also could turn you into Spider-Man. Yeah, so Which I, might I'm be taking. Good. I'm I'm skeptical, but I'm gonna like roll with this because I'm gonna think that's okay. a reasonable enough assumption that it's bad that I'm not gonna require the LSAT to tell me that. Even yeah, though, it's it's one of those words like yeah, that sounds pretty bad. Okay. Yeah. Second, irradiation can reduce the vitamin content of fresh foods, leaving behind chemical residues. That's kind of two in one there. Ooh, huh? You skipped a word too. Oh, wait, second, irradiation can reduce the vitamin content of fresh foods, leaving behind harmful chemical residues. Oh, okay. I didn't hear harmful when you said it first time, but yeah. Um, Maybe I didn't say harmful. Yeah. Cool. Okay. There's two bad facts there. Yeah. I mean, we do have to assume that vitamins are good. Yep. Yeah. Because it didn't actually say that. I mean, that's pretty common sense, but it's like, okay, that sounds bad. Reduce the vitamin content and also leave behind not just chemical residues, but harmful chemical residues, which sounds clearly bad. Have I told you about talking in front of a large audience of 
scholars or academics? No. Okay, so sometimes the LSAT makes assumptions, right? And people like to jump all over them. And then I'm like, hey, that's not like a totally crazy assumption. And they're like, oh, this stupid test, it's so subjective, right? Like here, you just talked about how it said it can reduce the vitamin content of fresh foods. And you're like, well, that doesn't sound too good, but I guess that's an assumption. Maybe vitamins are bad for you or something, right? Like who knows? And I I think we both agree that's, it's a, it's a decently reasonable assumption to say that reducing the vitamin content of fresh foods is not a good thing. And so what I like to tell people in class is imagine you're standing in front of a large audience of academics or scholars. The only reason I'm choosing that group mm. is because presumably they're like smart as opposed to a bunch of <laughs> right, like, like a mob or something, right? So anyways, you're talking to them and you're like, hey, I just want to point out that Reducing the vitamin content of fresh foods is a good thing. Like, how many people are going to be like, huh? Like, really? Like, I, I don't really I don't really have time to hear this argument because it's just kind of stupid. So if you think right. that most people in the audience, like the vast, vast majority, are going to agree with the claim, then it's a reasonable assumption. Yeah, it's in the it's in the instructions for the section. Mm-hmm. Which, which people routinely don't read, but it is worth reading those instructions one time. It tells you specifically that you should not make assumptions that are by common sense standards, implausible or superfluous. Yep. So don't go out of your way to add ridiculous assumptions to the argument. If you added an assumption here, vitamins are bad. Yep. Hmm commonsensically that's probably not something we should add to the argument. Now that doesn't mean that we automatically get to add the assumption vitamins are good. Yeah. We don't necessarily assume that, but we're not going to like beat up the argument over something that's hard to see a lot of people. Yeah. Agree we're not going to make yeah. arguments that are hard to make. Yeah. Right. So if you want to try to sell people on the idea that vitamins are bad or that exposure to radio radioactive substances is it's good, good. <laughs> that's going to those are going to be hard arguments to make. So you might just sort of note, well, OK, we need it would be great to add a premise that says mm -hmm. exposure to radioactive substances is bad and it would be good to add a premise that vitamins are good, you know, but it's not a stretch. Right. Yeah. OK. Third. Irradiation spawns unique radiolytic products that cause serious health problems, including cancer. Okay, so they've piled up some pretty strong evidence, I would say. These do seem like reasons to avoid irradiated foods. Yeah, they do. Mm -hmm. But the question now says... Each of the following, if true, weakens the consumer advocate's argument, except it's an accept question, which means that there's basically like four right answers, and then you just pick the other one. Yep. There's going to be four weakeners here, and there's going to be one non-weakener. Could strengthen the argument or could just be irrelevant. But four of these are actually going to weaken the argument. And the conclusion again was what? That second sentence, there are good reasons to avoid irradiated foods. In other words, 
We shouldn't be doing this. Here's See, why. it's the implied should, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. It's basically like, it's, it's kind of telling, it's like, well, here's a reason why it's bad. Here's a reason why it's bad. Here's a reason why it's bad. And those are reasons to avoid irradiated food. Four of these answers are going to actually interfere with that somehow. And suggest that it's not as bad or as they say, basically. Maybe it's okay to have these foods. Okay. A says, unique radiolytic products have seldom been found in any irradiated food. Okay. (laughs) So that last concern is not as much of a concern as it sounded like it was. So although that doesn't necessarily mean we should go out and start eating (laughs) irradiated food, it does weaken this argument because one of the premises has now been severely undercut. It's like it okay. doesn't it does not disagree with the premise at all. What it does is it says, well, yeah, even though it's true that irradiation spawns mm-hmm. unique mm-hmm. radiolytic products that cause serious health problems, including cancer. Yeah, yeah, I know, but those are rarely found in the actual irradiated food. So even I if should, irradiation I should, does I, I should this, clarify, it undercut the assumption that you're going to encounter those. Right. Right. So yeah, sure. Irradiation does this thing, but if that thing does not end up in the actual lettuce that you're buying in the store, then doesn't seem like it matters that much. Right. Yep. So A is a weakener. B, so it's not the answer because this is an accept question. B says cancer and other serious health problems have many causes that are unrelated to radioactive substances and gamma rays. Okay, so there's more than one cause of cancer. That doesn't mean that radiation can't cause cancer. (laughs) But smoking, Ben. (laughs) Smoking is the number one cause of cancer. So what? doesn't matter. Uh, If this radioactive stuff still causes cancer, it still causes cancer. End of story. Who cares if there's other causes? And they're right. the most common. So, yeah, you know what happens on these questions a lot of times is like when I read the correct answer, I'm more like kind of just like, huh, what? And so I suspect this is correct, but it will be easier in some ways to get rid of the others because you'll see why they weaken. Whereas you'll this see one that they actually do anything. weaken. Yeah, I mean, from my LSAT experience um, and listeners who have been studying for a while might agree that answer is actually a common type of wrong answer on a weakened question. Yeah. So here it, it's pretty clear to me that if you come on, if you come in with an objection, like, well, but alcoholism also causes cancer or like, um, you know, pollution smog causes cancer. So what I, I still, that's not a, that's not a defense against the idea that irradiated lettuce can cause cancer. Yeah. It's just a real bad, it's, it's an irrelevant weakener it doesn't do anything. Yep. Okay. So we're now expecting, we know A is a weakener. We know that B is a typical bad wrong answer choice weakener, which means it's probably the answer here. Cause this is an accept question. I would go into C, D and E expecting them to weaken the argument. I think I would be pretty generous to them actually, because four of these answers are going to weaken the argument. So it's like, 
I'm let I'm not as like critical, right? I'm not like just, oh, that's bullshit. That's wrong. I'm going to read it and go like, yeah, okay. That weakens the argument. Yep. C says a study showed that irradiation leaves the vitamin content of virtually all fruits and vegetables unchanged. Okay. So the, what was it? The second premise? Yeah. Irradiation. A, this is a, I really like this question actually. It's nifty. Cause what was the premise exactly? Irradiation can mm. reduce the vitamin content of fresh foods, but how often does it do that? This says <laughs> a study showed that irradiation leaves the vitamin content of virtually all fruits and vegetables unchanged. So this does not contradict nope. the second premise, but it, undercuts the assumption many people, including I think us, <laughs> might have walked away with, which is, oh, if you can reduce the vitamin content, you do. And it does, yeah. <laughs> and there's a difference between can and does. Can just means theoretically possible that one time it might happen. Yep. And C says, oh, sure, theoretically possible, might happen. Yeah, but a study has shown that irradiation leaves the vitamin content of virtually all fruits and vegetables unchanged. Yeah. Now, to be clear, if something can happen, it may happen all the time. But the bottom line is we just don't know. We have no idea how often it happens. Yeah, but we kind of fell into the trap, honestly. I did. I Like oh, when yeah, I was I reading those premises, I was like, oh, shit. So there's going to be these unique radiolytic products in the in the food. And mm-hmm. A says, well, no, it, it, it sure, irradiation does create these products, but these products are seldom found in the actual food. Yep. You know, both A and C are just nicely defending against premises that I, I thought were better than they actually were. Yeah. D says the amount of harmful chemicals found in irradiated foods is less than the amount that occurs naturally in most kinds of foods. Hmm. So what premise was this? Oh, it says leaving behind harmful the second chemical. second half of that second yeah, premise. Leaving yeah. behind harmful chemical residues. That's interesting. This is like, oh, okay, there are harmful chemical residues, but not any more than anything else. So what's your alternative? <laughs> no, but D even seems to suggest if it's true, if D's true, mm-hmm. then it actually seems like this irradiation process might also be removing some harmful chemicals sure because it's like well yeah it can leave behind harmful chemical residues but when we look at the amount of harmful chemicals found in foods that have been irradiated the amount of harmful harmful chemicals that's in those food is less than the amount that occurs naturally in most foods yep okay so clear weakener undermining the importance of a premise, not arguing with a premise, but just saying, well, yeah, even though that's true, it just doesn't really matter. Hmm. E a study showed that the cancer rate is no higher among people who eat irradiated food than among those who do not. Okay. (laughs) So regardless of all this shit that's happening, the cancer rate isn't any higher. So I guess (laughs) at the end of the day, it's not making a difference. Yep. Yeah, they brought up this super scary specter of cancer, right? Like people read cancer, they go, oh my God, like, wow, that's the worst thing. Yeah. You know, and the E, what E does is it goes, well, yeah, irradiation does spawn these radiolytic products and those radiolytic products 
do cause serious health problems, including cancer, but scoreboard, a study has shown that the cancer rates no higher among people who eat irradiated food. Yep. Here, A, C, D, and E are all pretty good weakeners. The correct answer is B because pointing to some other cause of cancer just doesn't do anything. Who cares about other causes of cancer? That's not the point. Yep. All right. Um, anything else you want to say about that one? No. That, oh, sorry. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. We're everywhere at thinking LSAT and at LSAT demon. Tons of good content uh, on the YouTube channels. Highlights from the podcast at Thinking LSAT. Highlights from our classes at LSAT Demon. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Um, like us, leave a comment, do all the things. Leave us a review on iTunes as well. Um, that's still a really important source of new listeners for us. So if you get a chance to write a few words about the show, um, I would be personally indebted to you. I'll buy you a beer. How about that? Email help at thinkinglset.com if you want to submit anything for the show or ask us questions about the show or yell at us about learning styles or whatever you want to talk about. Uh, help at thinkinglset.com. You can email help at lsatdemon.com if you want to talk about the demon at all, questions about subscriptions. Staff will get right back to you there. That's also where you go if you want to um, submit for our fee waiver program. If you qualify for the LSAC fee waiver program, uh, We'll give you all sorts of discounts and free stuff. Uh, that's help at lsatdemon.com. By the way, uh, Ben, my class Tuesday night. Yeah. Somehow the fee waiver came up and there were like eight people in the room who had all gotten denied for the LSAC fee waiver, appealed, and then gotten it on appeal. Wow. So we might be in a situation where the LSAC is sort of denying everybody that applies just to see if you're serious, see how much you really care. See if you'll go ahead and appeal. Huh? So just because they denied you once doesn't mean you're not going to get it. If you come back to them again, They're so be I like, would recommend I that everybody show. do that. <laughs> What's that? They're going to be like, I hate that show. <laughs> if they were familiar with us at all, they would already hate us. Yeah. I, I'm hoping that they're not listening. No, anyway, the good folks at LSAC are doing great work. And, um, please apply for the LSAC fee waiver if you think you could qualify. And if you don't make it on the first attempt, you can, there's ways to get through on appeal. So why not appeal? I mean, that fee waiver is worth like a couple thousand dollars pretty easily. Yep. So if you think you can make a case for financial hardship, apply for the LSAC fee waiver. And then if you get it, um, yeah, we'll give you discounts and free stuff uh, on the demon help at lsatdemon.com. That was episode 283 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.